folks, and welcome to Darkling number 38 from Darker Days Radio. I am Mark, your host for this episode, and I've brought a couple of special guests along for the ride. Last summer in Darkling number 35, I brought you a review of the quick start for Mage the Ascension 20th Anniversary Edition. As promised, here we are again, just over a year later, with an in-depth review of the full book. So, as I said, joining me are two long-term Mage fans and World of Darkness players, who are also unfortunate enough to be members of my ongoing Mage Chronicle, Noam and Mark. Uh, that's right, there are now two of us. In true Darker Days fashion, we're straddling timelines, zones, I mean uh, time zones. I'm in the UK, Noam is in Israel, and Mark is usually in Switzerland, but tonight he's in Israel as well. Welcome aboard, guys. Thanks. Hi. Hey, Mark. Hi, Noam. Hey. Good to have you guys here. So, before we crack on with the review, why don't you two tell us a bit about your background with Mage and the World of Darkness? Noam. Uh, well, I guess I started playing Mage about 20 years ago. And it has definitely become my favorite role-playing game. My longtime character is a mad son of ether who I wish I could uh, imitate more. And <laughs> mad? He's misunderstood at best. Indeed. It's just a paradox. It's just a paradox. But other than that, I managed to play some other characters in some other campaigns. And it's... Uh, my favorite game, really, uh, just because of the breadth of it, the flexibility of it, the scope, the freedom it offers, and yeah, just fun. Cool. Mark, what about you? So I made a mage character before I'd heard of mage, because I made an Ars Magica character oh. to cameo in your, uh, in your Dark Ages Vampire game uh, something like 20 years ago. Yeah. And then uh, found all kinds of setting elements from that in the, in the mage setting, hermetics and kirtam and, and uh, all that cool stuff. Uh, I've played a bunch of other World of Darkness stuff and run the odd Changeling the Dreaming session, two or three sessions. Uh, and I've been a regular mage player in your Mage Chronicle for the past, I think it's now five and a half years. Well, you're, you're just a noob. Five years, my yeah, God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't stop playing until it was out of print. Can you imagine? Uh, I like the same things that uh, that Noam just mentioned. I love the the flexibility that the that the the setting and the system offer. I love the themes. I love the the uh, the way that it is a setting that is very much about ideas and ideals. Yeah, I find it a very very appealing game, and I think it has real staying power. Clearly, twenty years, twenty plus years on. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the structure of the episode first. What we're going to do is give you guys a top-level overview of the book, what it is, what you can expect as a reader, the writing style, and so forth. Then we're going to dive in and do a chapter-by-chapter analysis. We'll look at what each chapter gives us, share some opinions, and then highlight some of the coolest bits and pieces in each chapter before moving on with the next. So, without further ado, let's crack open the purple and gold Tome of Awesomeness and see what the Satyr has in store for us today. Mage the Ascension 20th Anniversary Edition is the latest core book in Onyx Path's revival of the classic World of Darkness. Its Kickstarter campaign raised over $670,000. Quite a lot of it from the likes of us. <laughs> more, than, more than is probably healthy. The book is helmed and largely authored by Ceteros Phil Brucato, who was the Mage line developer from pretty much the word go. Once the core book for Mage First Edition was out, Mage became Phil's baby and he shaped it, for better or for worse, over the next five odd years. And although other developers have since taken their time at the helm and produced some truly world-class material, the Satyr's resonance is still deeply entwined with Mage. No surprise then that Onyx Path chose him to head up the 20th anniversary edition. 
So now it's on general release. It's a 700-page monster of a book. It's available from DriveThruRPG in PDF, standard, and premium print-on-demand versions. And for the Kickstarter backers, the Deluxe and the Q Prime versions, complete with lenticular hologram, are on their way. So how is it structured? Well, you have an introduction uh, with some fiction. The book then is itself divided into three parts, named Awaken, Believe, and Ascend. These divide themselves into ten chapters and two appendices. The first part, Awaken, covers the mage setting. After that, we have Believe, which looks at the history of the world of darkness and the mage universe, the factions you can play, character creation, storyteller advice. And finally, Ascend has the rules, the systems, the magic book, allies, antagonists, merits, flaws, and wanderers. So, what does it look like? Well, it's a thick, glossy tome, the usual purple, silk, and gold cover, with a card of Dante as the magician on the front. The art inside is generally pretty damn awesome. There's a few old pieces here and there, but most of it's entirely new. Stand out among these are some new pieces by Michael Kaluta. The traditions have all received new splat pages from Echo Chernik, and there are some wonderful chapter openers. It's worth saying that it's not just a compilation or a best of previous editions. This is very much a new edition. There have been some significant changes to mechanics. The metaplot has been advanced. So, in short, everything you'd expect from a new edition plus a summation of the last 20-plus years of Mage. In that, it takes a slightly different approach to Vampire's 20th anniversary and Werewolf's 20th anniversary editions. Vampire 20 was pretty much metaplot agnostic. Werewolf nudged it a little bit. But Mage has really stepped up and pushed the metaplot forward. If anything, it hews more towards Mage's second edition in tone and style. It's not surprising with Satyr at the helm. However, that said, it doesn't ignore or reject the, uh, the revised era. Actually, it's, I find it pretty respectful to later era mage books. It manages to incorporate more or less every single one of revised metaplot developments, all the way through to the stuff that you find in Ascension, the final book of the line before I went out of print. Um, we'll talk more about metaplot in a minute. Now, Mark, you have some interesting observations about the, the writing style, the scope, and the editorial choices. Why don't you uh, give us your outlook on those? Okay, so in terms of scope, I think it deserves repeating that this is a 700-page gaming supplement. It's uh, something like a half a million words. It is a tremendous achievement to be able to create something of this scale with so much material uh, and maintain uh, any kind of coherence. So I, I'm hugely impressed. Yeah. Just the, the sheer breadth of it, taking in so much of the setting, is, uh, is remarkable. I found the writing style to be of a very high standard, not just for, for a gaming supplement, but in general. It's very engaging. It's very clear from the writing that he loves his material, and I find that yeah. uh, to be quite infectious. I find, if I have to look for complaints that, if anything, some people will find that his own personal politics may be a little bit too upfront, and we'll probably come on to a few examples of that later in the review. Yeah, some people have. Yeah, we'll touch on that later on. Right. And my own personal bugbear is the use of italics for emphasis. <laughs> there are some paragraphs where it seems like there's an italicized word in every second sentence. Uh, sometimes even when the paragraph is only two sentences and the sentences only have five or six words each. A particular example I'm thinking of is there's a little sidebar that lists 
levels of loyalty to disloyalty ascribed by the, the technocratic union, with mm. one being total loyalty and six being you're about to be killed. <laughs> uh, and there's a joke that they include level seven, which has it as a description. There is no level seven. It's used as a joke. And the word is, is italicized. Right. I think the reader can pretty much work that out for themselves. Yeah, yeah, okay. But this really is me looking for faults with... Well, that's interesting. You, you often have to look for things to criticize in this, I find. It's, it's, it's hard to, to yeah. really find something that leaps out at you. And that's very much a compliment to Sator Phil, who deserves enormous credit for having pulled this off, and for the Onyx Path team for what I think is a tremendous editing uh, effort. And it is a tremendous tome. I think many people would have paid very similar amounts of money for each if Awaken, Believe and Ascend had been marketed as separate supplements. If it had been a three-volume book at twice the price, I don't think I would have thought twice about it. I, I think the main thing that kind of radiated to me when I was reading through was affection. And I, I don't know how much of it is Satya Phil's affection for the story and for the game and how much of it is mine, but it just felt like coming back to a favorite memory and, and living through it again and experiencing it uh, as somebody older and, and you know, with more experience, but still coming back to that, that same basic theme. And yeah, it was just a pleasure from the moment I downloaded it to, uh, well, still now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Mm. Outstanding. Before we move on to the actual chapters, I want to field a couple of questions from mage fans on the internet, and we'll do more of these as we move through the review. Toyne from the Onyx Path forums asks, as a player who never played Ascension, am I missing something by starting with the 20th anniversary edition? And if so, what am I missing? Nightmare from the Midnight Express forums said something similar, wanting to know how accessible it is to new players. Trippy asks on the Onyx Path forums, is the size of the thing too overwhelming for practical use? When is too much too much? Is the focus too broad or is it a strength? Well, I think that's a very legitimate question because it is huge. Yeah. Uh, and I think if I'd never heard of Mage and I walked into a game store and I perused, you know, there's a line of new games I've never heard of, I'm not sure I would necessarily go for the one that's 700 <laughs> pages long if I didn't know what I was, what I was going for. Now, yeah. I think Sator Phil has talked about this, about how they early on had to decide whether to, to pitch this at the fan base or at new players, and that they decided that where they weren't sure they would go for the, for the fan base. I do yeah. think, though, that even though it could be overwhelming for new players, new storytellers, people who aren't familiar with Mage or with the, with the World of Darkness, that, on the other hand, they make an effort to break it into comprehensible sections the three books we talked about, the chapters that those break down to, each of which is very coherent and very much built around a theme. They also uh, make the size and scale of it easy to digest with extremely useful cross-references in boldface throughout the text. Almost every page will include a, for more on this, see page such and such and chapter such and such, yeah. which is very useful. More on the content side of things, Phil also emphasizes that although the book contains an absolute ton of metaplot, you don't have to use any of that. There's great emphasis, and we'll come on to this later in the section on the, on the advice for storytellers, there's great emphasis on uh, running intimate chronicles. There's a real emphasis on running 
stories that are small, but nonetheless about big ideas. Right. So right. as someone who hasn't uh, run Mage, but would certainly consider running it, especially with a, a supplement of this quality to use, I don't feel that I would need to internalize the full half million words before no. I could competently run a Mage comic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very it's very friendly in that regard. Yeah, yeah. I think I think also a lot of the things that we had with in previous games. I remember having players question how to play a mage, what the paradigm means, what what the focus means, how to do something, how to what what the mage thinks, what actually happens when you use magic, and I think the fact that that is explained, it might be longer in this book, but it, it's explained better, uh, having seen the kind of questions that arose before, might make it more accessible to players, to new players, than the old versions, where you ha- had to figure it out by yourself. Uh, yeah, I agree, it comes with 20 odd years of hindsight of knowing what the most frequently asked questions are about Mage, and allow, has allowed Satya Phil to really hone in upon what the bones of contention would be. Hmm. Trippy also asked and I think we've answered this already, uh, does the game feel magical? Does it capture the spirit of the original? Uh, for me, that is a huge yes. I remember very strongly my experience of sitting down and reading Mage First Edition for the first time. And like you said earlier on, Noam, it was like being back there. It has that energy, that excitement that, uh, that those early days brought. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. In fact, I had flashbacks to when I read the book the first time. Yeah. Oh, how cool. So, let's dive into the chapters themselves. It starts with an introduction and some opening fiction featuring the redoubtable secret agent John Courage and Leanne of the Ecstatics. I just want to read the opening words, though. It starts with, There's a boy on a boat on a purple sky where the air flashes like catastrophic dragons and a patch-eyed man lays a heavy hand on that boy's shoulder and tells him, This is where the world dies, son. That's the mage first edition storyteller screen. <laughs> so when I saw that, I was just like, oh my God, we're back there. We're starting right from the word go. Just such a great way to open it. Really, really, really cool. Now, Mark, um, you had a, a comment about the fiction in general, didn't you? I really love the fiction. I think the fiction yeah. stands in its own right, uh, even if it weren't there to introduce chapters in a gaming supplement. I've never read any of the World of Darkness fiction. I'll be, I'll be honest, I'm biased against game-based fiction ever since uh, I stopped reading Forgotten Realms setting novels age 14. <laughs> right. uh, but I really like the fiction uh, in this. I, I enjoy the fiction that's sprinkled throughout World of Darkness game books, and especially here. I think it's to a very high standard. I thought that the, the opening... Uh, sequence that you refer to with um, John Courage and Leanne uh, Milner uh, meeting at uh, at uh, campsite uh, and having their their dialogue really set the tone. Uh, yeah. Really provided a way into the setting, uh, and I think using this the fiction in this way prevents the reader from potentially seeing all of the various groups and factions and traditions and paradigms as kind of cardboard cutouts. It gives them real mm. depth. John Courage is a uh, uh, he's a technocratic union operative who's going to secretly meet tradition mage and ecstatic. They're both in the first few pages stepping out of the stereotypes associated with their backgrounds. Um, they have yeah. complex motivations. Uh, John Courage's motivations are not necessarily those of the technocratic union. 
Yeah, very much. And I think that's I think that's really core to the to the theme of the of the game that you have to you have to find your own truth. Yes, and you have to absolutely. You, and and you have to live with your choices. Uh, and and that's something that I that to me uh, as someone who who doesn't have uh, quite as much history with you know I I I've read very little of the first edition quite a lot of the revised and second edition settings but uh, it was very powerful for me in to to see that right in the first few pages completely agree I mean long-term listeners will know that I mean I'm not shy in my biases about a world of darkness and trifiction I tend to be quite rude about it in general but this really really drew me in and like you say it, you're straight in the setting you're straight into the into the world and into the themes of the game another thing that was nice about the intro is to see all the tarot cards and there's lots of these scattered all over the book they've been an iconic part of mage title pages in years past so it's really nice to see them here in glorious color after the introductory fiction, it moves on to an overview of the book, what it's trying to do. It talks about previous editions, and we get our first sidebar. This one covers reality zones, areas of shifting paradigms across the globe. Now, there are lots of these sidebars scattered throughout the book, covering a whole variety of stuff, and we'll delve more into that as we go through the review. We are hit then across the head with a massive 11-page lexicon, and this shows us something that is worth mentioning that we've already touched on. It's not for the faint of heart. Readers new to Mage do have a lot to absorb, but as you said earlier on, Mark, Satorfield has been explicit in that he's pitching this at established Mage fans. And uh, you mentioned him earlier on Facebook, where he's, he said that he realized he could either make it for the newbies or the long-time fans, and, and cited with the long-time fans. But he's also tried to make it accessible for anyone willing to dare opening a book that massive and see what they could do with what's inside. Okay, moving on. Chapter 1, then. The Mage's Path. This gives us an overview of what it means to be a mage, viewed through the lens of the major arcana of the tarot. So this gives us a magical approach from the outset. The text is rich with magical concepts and esoterica. It's pitched as an in-character piece from the nameless narrator, but Phil Brocato's voice comes through very strongly. It's filled with passionate pronouncements, nuggets of etymology. The special K is back at the end of the word magic. It's got these little sidebars addressing behind-the-scenes design decisions and themes appropriate to the game. What it does is basically takes us from being a sleeper through the process of awakening, and then through the aspects and allegiances, the conflicts of the awakened world, through to various types of resolution that mages might find. It shows us the world of mage in a nutshell. Uh, I thought it was a, a great way to start the book. What do you guys think? Uh, I, I think that the first chapter has to pull you in if you don't get a feel for the game for the theme for what you might be able to do in it what you might be able to experience then you're never going to get through anything especially not the 700 pages here and i think this one does the job really it really does and yeah i love the tarot appearing again and again and just bringing back uh, little bits from uh, previous books yeah I, I think Noam hits it on the head there. Um, I'd add that I'm a, I'm a magic with a K-ist, so uh, I was glad to see that. I love the references to Alistair Crowley and to <laughs> the bits of etymology that you mentioned. It's an excellent introduction to the setting, and that's what the, what the first chapter should be. Now, early in this section, we also get the first of the future fates sidebars, which address metaplot elements. The first one talks about the Ascension War. And these are scattered all throughout the first five chapters. They give us pretty much all the metaplot elements from Mage the Ascension's history, but made optional. We're shown different ways to incorporate them or ignore them. What it ends up being is an awesome metaplot toolbox. 
A couple of them are assumed as default in Mage 20, uh, such as the New Horizon Council, for example, but most of them remain up to the storyteller to use, abuse, or refuse according to taste. And they're not just summaries of what has gone before, but that also feature some metaplot advancements. The Nefandi infiltration subplot, for example, comes to full flower. We see a return of threat null from the revised convention books. All of them are given space and a decent treatment. One thing that impressed me about these is the wording in these Future Fates sidebars is very clever. Often with only a word or two, they address metaplot elements from all across the game line. One great example of this is the true nature of the technocracy's control. Mage 20 gives us a few options to work with, including stuff from Essential, the final book of the, of the original run of the line, without going off on weird tangents, which I think is a real testament to the precision in the writing. Mage fans across the internet have met these with different levels of enthusiasm, however. Ralph Ray on Facebook wasn't a huge fan of these. He thought the sidebars didn't really tease out enough for a cohesive whole, and that they were trying to please too many people. In particular, he wasn't overly enamored with the prominence of the Nefandic infiltration metaplot. Beckett, by comparison, hi Beckett, thought this approach was great. He loved how Mage 20 handled a lot of the changes and a lot of the plot between the editions. Well, I think, um, on the whole, I really like it. By presenting the, all the various metaplots element, elements as a... I, I think you called them a toolbox a moment ago. Yeah. It really reduces the risk of... Uh, a storyteller deciding not to use something which they later rely on for some other related yeah. element of the uh, of the story. So I think that's quite clever. I think the way that these often cross-reference to each other uh, is very helpful. I do think that um, that Ralph Rea has a point in that it does occasionally seem to stray into trying to be all, all things to all people. There's one that suggests that you could uh, essentially ignore all developments since the uh, since the 90s. You know, not have a web, not have mm. cell phones in your setting, uh, and just play in the 90s. Well, in, in that case, if this is a book aimed at mage fans, uh, why would they not just simply take second edition off the shelf? <laughs> and run that? Um, if, you, if you didn't want to set it in a contemporary setting and you didn't want to have any of the metaplots having taken place, then, then that sort of obviates the need for M20. Uh, I, 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 I think that one, that is, I, I suppose that aside. No, on the whole, I like the approach. Overall, yeah, I, th I think I think it's a necessary part because you can set the game at any point, and it might just be a, fu a possible future fate, something that somebody with I don't know the time sphere might get a glimpse, even if it never really happens. Mm, that's a nice idea. But I would have preferred if Halel stayed in you know ancient history, Gilgul <laughs> done with. Um, I never really. Uh, understood the, the need to bring it back, that bit of story, but yes. Right, well that's interesting. That's what I thought was one of the standout points. There are three of these sidebars in Chapter 1 covering the Ascension War as a whole, the fall of Doisetep, and the Great Petraeus storyline from the War in Heaven novels. Um, so although I'm not a huge fan of the War in Heaven uh, plotline, I thought it was interesting to see stuff from the novels actually being properly addressed in the book, which is something that Mage has only done intermittently before. Right, now, chapter two, magic, the art of reality. So here, the chapter covers what magic is from a metaphysical in-game perspective. It looks at paradox, at resonance, uh, the differences between static, dynamic, and technomagic. It looks at synergy, which is a, a new version of resonance. And there's a difference now between resonance from the revised era, where it was a game trait, although 
the option is provi provided for you to use Resonance as a game trait, it's more now returned to its first and second edition position as a flavor that's attached to your mage. We look at avatars, quintessence, coincidental and vulgar magic, the works, the works. It kind of reminded me of how I looked at, at mage at the mage system, at, at the game, uh, when we started out and was wondering, what is this? What is this magic thing that uh, I'm supposed to be able to do? And try to make sense of how to kind of understand it. And I really like the way that it concentrates on, on the personal implications of having awakened what you have to do, what you have to watch out for, how it makes you think, uh, and the kind of risks and rewards you can get. I very much like the uh, the way that it described Paradox. I think Paradox is always sort of a sore point when you play Mage. You try to avoid it, it's inescapable, but in the end it is such an important part of uh, how it defines the behavior of, of Mages and Mage society as a whole. And in a lot of ways, changing the consensus, changing the paradigm in order to make, to avoid Paradox is a big aim of the players uh, and and the characters, so it kind of gives a framework for another, another reason for doing things in Mage. I really really enjoyed it. Oh, I love this section. The only thing I would want to add to to what Noah was saying a moment ago was uh, both of you explained to me years ago that um, if you're not gaining paradox, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I'm I'm glad to see that that still applies. It finishes up with an overview of the spheres, you know, the nine elements of magic that govern aspects of reality, life, matter, time, entropy, spirit, and so on. And as you say, it's solid, but it's evocative. And I find it comes in really handy for material later in the book. It really sets a groundwork, so when you finally come to the rules that talk about these things, you've already got a good understanding of where it's coming from. And for me, that's one of the standout points of this chapter. Now, chapter three, The Shadow World. We give, get an overview of the mage universe, starting from the world as mortals see it, quite literally starting with a walk in the park and expanding outward from there to the very edge of the spirit world. And you can really start to see in this chapter how Seatif Phil is trying to bring Mage 20th into the 21st century. There's lots of references to post-millennial developments. Uh, he's also attempting to give the, the game a more global perspective, to be more inclusive of other cultures and move away from a Western perspective of the other. Generally, it's a success. There are more hits than misses. Um, the book is still, uh, inevitably, a product of an American mind with an American's concerns. For example, the prominence of Fox News is less relevant outside the USA. Hurricane Katrina gets mentioned, but not the Boxing Day tsunami, things like that. For me, this is not a huge issue. We're talking a handful of words out of half a million, but it's worth mentioning from a purely critical perspective, I think. And let's not forget that Mage retains its commitment to diversity, Dante is still there, proudly displayed on the cover. I think it's interesting that you should mention that, because Sato Phil mentioned just that in a post about Mage's commitment to diversity on the Mage 20 Facebook page yesterday, or the day before. He brought, up, he brought up Dante, one of, the, one of the original designer's own characters, as an example of how they were trying to be subversive. Yeah, in 1993, yeah. so, you know, yeah, exactly, mm. yeah. So for me, the, the best elements of this chapter are its building block structure. The Mage universe is so vast and so weird that this section lays out the groundwork in a way that's really easy to grasp. I was hugely impressed by this. And that just continued with chapter four, The Worlds Beyond, where we step into the umbra of the spirit world. A huge but huge 
coverage of the spirit realms. It really digs into the esoteric details. Start off with the penumbra, the spiritual reflection of the mortal world, and then the three umbras, the underworld, the spirit wild, and the astral realms. It looks at the digital web, the horizon realms, the deep umbra. Amart, you said that you forgot you were reading to review in this bit. Yeah, completely swept me away. There was a question from someone on the forums that we covered early on in the review about whether whether it felt magical. This chapter was like a journey to the umbra. I was far, far away, and then I came to the end of the chapter and um, uh, and had to go back and read it again. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it was. Uh, I think it, 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 it's a very good section. I think the idea that different people can have different perceptions of what the umbra looks like depending on on their own understanding of how magic works is yeah, a exactly. really, really interesting idea. I love the level of detail in this chapter, and I loved seeing some stuff from the really obscure corners of the mage setting. I really enjoyed the Future Fate sidebar on cell phones and the internet, the idea of playing a sort of weird retro 90s setting. Um, to see Mount Kaf and Midrealm get name-checked, just fantastic. Really tight, descriptive, coherent writing. Uh, like you say, Mark, it's one of the best sections of the book for me. Uh, and then, yeah, you finish the chapter and you turn the page and there's Vormas in his war form. <laughs> what the hell? Yeah, book two, um, Believe, chapter five, The Ascension Warriors. Now, this is an immense chapter but it's really really needed it starts off with a uh, the history section from the big bang to the present day i managed to cover it in 15 pages um so it's not as comprehensive as the history sections in, in the guide to the traditions which i think ran for 60 pages or guide to the technocracy which was 30 something but it has the advantage of being impartial and non-partisan it's not showing you the major universe from the perspective of the traditions or from the perspective of the union um, it doesn't shy away from highlighting the failings of the traditions or the advantage of the, of the technocracy. And as I think we've already mentioned, this is a theme throughout the book. Mage 20 embraces the technocracy as viable protagonist faction, not just as faceless men in black. So after this introductory section, it then hones in and focuses on the factions themselves and starts up with the traditions. And uh, Mark, maybe you want to talk us through that sure. a little bit. So uh, for a long time, World of Darkness... Uh, readers, this will be a very familiar section with two pages per tradition, an introductory section of descriptive text on the tradition from the perspective of a member of the tradition. This is, this is all very familiar. This is accompanied by absolutely beautiful art and layout. It's, a, it's overall a beautiful book, but uh, the graphic design applied to these pages and Echo Chernik's absolutely stunning art is really, really wonderful. I'm sure that many backers will be using the Kickstarter backers, will be using the wallpaper um, for their computers that uh, that came with many of the pledge levels, which uses this artwork. It's absolutely stunning. Guilty. So, uh, well, there you go. One thing that's, um, that's slightly different to previous uh, incarnations of a section such as this in earlier books is that there is a, a very useful section on focus, and there's the familiar stereotype section, but instead of the traditions just talking about the other traditions, it's tighter than it used to be. It's now a section that gives a, a single line on the other traditions as a whole, a single line on the Union, and a single line on the Disparates. Overall, it's a, it's a familiar introduction to the various uh, playable factions. I quite like the writing. I, I, wouldn't th I wouldn't say that any of these sections are as standout as, for example, the section on the spirit world, but they're good, uh, and they give you what you need, along, right. with, uh, along with absolutely beautiful graphic design and art. 
Yeah, and I don't think we've spoken about that strongly enough. The layout and the graphic design in the book overall is, is just stunning. And I think a lot of the clarity of finding information and making use of some of the charts and tables that come in later uh, can really be ascribed to, to top-level graphic design. Um, for me, I, I loved seeing new names for, for the traditions, the, seeing the Sahajia come back, looking at Kavadi, Sons of Ether becoming Society of Ether. Uh, Michael Buchheim asked on Google+, Plus whether these names you know, are listed and used throughout, and they are. They're not used as the page spread headers, but you'll see them at the beginning and scattered throughout the chapter, throughout the, the page spreads themselves. Um, I've got to also second your comment about Echo Chernik's art. It's just it's just gorgeous, jaw-dropping stuff, and some really solid overviews of tradition, culture, and society. Trippy asked about why the Hermetics can't choose their affinity spheres. Most of the other traditions, all the other traditions, get to choose from one, two, or three different spheres. The Hermetics has got to be forces. For me, this comes down to their lack of flexibility in their paradigm. Hermetic paradigm is noted for being rigid and formulated. And they're also the masters of the elements. It's not that they're you know, viewing X-rays and gravity waves and what have you. They're seeing earth, air, fire, and water, and controlling these as the fundamental elements of the world. And I think there are some space considerations, too. The hermetic write-up runs flush right down to the page border. Um, so given that there are anything, a dozen, two dozen different sub-houses within the Order of Hermes at any given time, uh, I think it would be difficult to, 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 to fan that out. Also, come on, we're talking about the Hermetics. Have you ever met a Hermetic who doesn't quite quickly start blowing stuff up? <laughs> really? This is true. This is yep. true. Of course it has to be forces. <laughs> right, the technocracy. Now, the structure and layout and contents are more or less the same idea as the traditions. We start with an overview of what the technocracy are, a little bit about their history, the, the precepts of Damien, their uh, Ten Commandments, as it were. And then it gets into the five conventions. The artwork here isn't, to my mind, quite as stunning as Echo Chernik's work. It actually reminds me, though, of a lot of the stuff off the tarot cards. It's strong, and it's evocative, and it's vibrant. Mm. Uh, Noam, how did the technocracy stuff come across to you? Well, I, I like the way that they're presented as kind of an equal option to the traditions. I think the overall, the game line... Uh, move towards that kind of view overall through the editions and, yeah. and it's nice to kind of get more or less equal footing there. I think in a lot of ways, we live in the world, the real world where the technocracy kind of won don't we? Uh, we do use the cell phones, we talk on the internet We're doing uh, it now yeah. and <laughs> Exactly and, and we got the, the book on PDF and the the traditions are the might have beens the you know they're the sore losers who don't know when to quit uh, <laughs> and we and we love to we love to play them uh in the same way that you know we might like to uh i don't know i play when we play d and d my favorite character is a priest and i'm an atheist and in the right. same way i i'll 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 happily play a hippie when i play mage who believes in crystal healing and Reiki and uh, homeopathic medicine, but that's not the world we actually live in. And I think that, in a way, that was one of the things that they did in Mage, that you could play the other side, the side that we don't get to play every day. But the side that we do play every day can be interesting too, and, and I think it comes across now a bit more than it did before. Yeah, that's, that's a really great point. 
Uh, I love the way it makes the technocracy a viable faction, but I also like, and, and this comes in very clearly toward the end of this section, um, that it doesn't pretend that they're somehow the good guys. Uh, it makes their brutal, oppressive nature very, very clear. It manages to keep them playable, um, which is really, that's, that's an amazing achievement if you think about it. Um, there are some great future fate sidebars here on Threat Null and on a, a kinder, gentler technocratic union. And there's some cool coverage of a bunch of really weird sub-factions and, and dissident elements within the technocracy. Mm. Really, really colorful. Now, following this, we move on to the Disparates, who are unaligned mages, initially, um, from what were called crafts earlier in Mage's life. And what this does, it takes 11 of these crafts and updates them for Mage 20 and gives us brief notes on eight more. These main 11 have joined together to form a disparate alliance, a kind of not traditions. This ties into the Nefandic infiltration metaplot, where the idea being that the disparates have come to an awareness that the Nefandi have put their nasty tentacles into the high levels of the traditions and the technocracy, and they've fought an alliance in response to this. Now, each craft is laid out in the same way as the two-page splats for the traditions and for the technocracy. They're really well-defined. They're immediately playable, immediately engaging, and the artwork here is just beautiful. How successful do we feel this section is, though? Trippy asks, do the various affiliations feel modern, or could they have done more? Do the crafts capture enough inspiration as new alternative groups to join? Has the dynamic between the technocracy and the rest changed? Nightmare is also curious about how successful the portrayal of the crafts has been. Personally, I, I love the Disparates. I've always enjoyed them as factions within the main game itself. I'm always peppering my games with members of the crafts. I'm not 100% sold on the believability of the Disparate Alliance. The fact that it's pulled so many disparate elements together, for me, strains credibility a little bit. But then, to be fair, you could say that about the traditions themselves. Mm. So... It's, it's six of one and a half a dozen of the other. What did you guys think of this? I, I think a lot of the... Uh, wh one of the big reasons that Disparates would never have joined anyone in the past is that many of them are very geographically limited. They live in a very specific place on, in the world. They have a very specific history, and they want to keep it that way. But in a more global environment with the internet and cell phones, and yeah, maybe... Maybe, but it feels a bit, you know... The book does play up the element. It does make a, a strong case for them using modern technology and the internet to forge their bonds. So, I, you know, there's an argument to, be, argument to be made there. I had a similar feeling that it seemed a little bit forced for them to have an alliance. I think um, particularly the Hollowins struck me as being prime candidates to be undermining that from the get-go. As, uh, as for Trippy's question, though, I think they very much do capture enough inspiration to join. You've asked us um, for the next chapter in our chronicle to come up with a few alternate characters to play in flashbacks relating mm. to a plot element in our game. And I'm seriously considering one of them being uh, a member of one of these disparates. I, th cool. I think they're very engaging. I, I was play not... Taftani. Play Taftani. I was not... Well, maybe. I was not, <laughs> I was not very familiar with them before reading this section. And I feel like I now have quite a good handle on which I would be interested in playing, which I'd want to know more about, which are maybe not for me. Yeah, I thought uh, I thought it really brought them to life. I'd heard of the crafts. Oh. I didn't know much about them. And, and now I think I do. Yeah. Good. Oh, so the book's hit its target there. Yeah. Now, the chapter ends with a look at the Nefandi and the Marauders with an impressive level of detail. It draws on the best that the Books of Madness and other volumes had to offer. 
There is some excellent material on Nefandic tactics, with advice on making them more than just boogeymen with tentacles for faces. We get a thorough analysis of why the Nefandic victory metaplot exists in the way that it does. There's a frank look at the Marauders, and it addresses how to portray them sensibly, uh, dealing with madness sensitively in-game. It also looks at how the Marauders cooperate at various levels, which has always been something that I found difficult to get my head around, and this lays it out in really quite a clear way. There's a really nice overview of Quiet that taps into the more rules-oriented details later in the book. It's one of the best descriptions I've seen of the Mad. They really, really do make sense. Yeah, I think, I think it's, overall it's very good. I like how it covers the Nefandi and the Marauders. I like how it doesn't really suggest them as playable options. Yeah. And pitches them as antagonists. I like how it doesn't try and be a mini Black Dog, Black Dog publishing supplement right. nestled in a White Wolf stroke Onyx Path book. I also, yeah, uh, as you said, uh, I, th- I think it gives good, coherent descriptions of how to portray uh, madness sensibly, and in doing so, avoids straying into the absurd. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think this is something that dealing with with issues that may trigger, I think, traumatic experiences in players' lives outside of the game. With you know, as we we're all aware from the news mental illness on the rise throughout the Western world and probably the world as a whole. I think this is a, yeah. this, this, this section has, uh, yeah, it, it treads quite a fine line and it does so very deftly. Yeah, I agree. Now, Ghost Orchestra says on the Midnight Express forums that he feels there has been a gradual slide toward making the technocracy more sympathetic and the traditions less so. He thinks that the new emphasis on the Nefandi plays into this. So if there's a bigger threat out there than the technocracy, it makes the technocracy seem not as bad. And he said it's the thing he likes least about what he feels is otherwise an excellent book. Now, we've spoken already a little bit about this. Is there anything you guys want to add to that? Yeah, I think the, the struggle between the technocracy and the traditions is on what ascension will actually look like. That is an ascension war, but the battle against the Nefandi is, is on a different level. It's for, the, for an actual chance at ascension, if, for an actual chance at existence, really, in yeah. a lot of cases. And in that sense, it makes sense that the Nefandi would be the bigger enemy. And I think even in previous, previous editions, the description of World War II, when the traditions and the technocracy were working together to defeat the Nefandi, uh, that was already there. I don't think yeah, it's it, not new. I agree. Yeah. It's something that's always been there. And yeah, maybe, maybe it has a bit more emphasis now because the technocracy gets you know, a bit more playable. But I don't think it's new. Mark, what's your take well, on that? I, I think Ghost Orchestra is onto something in that uh, Noah mentioned that earlier in the review that the technocracy has become, I'm not sure sympathetic is the right word either, but certainly more than just faceless men in black. And they certainly have become more playable. One of the things that this book sets out to do is to very much not present the traditions as the good, good guys to the technocracy's bad guys. Yeah. The technocracy very much believe that the ends justify the means, but certainly some of them are in it for heroic reasons, trying to perhaps save humanity from its own excesses. And I think that you could argue, as Ghost Orchestra does, that if if you agree with the point that the Nefandi are the bigger danger, that does to some extent diminish the Union as a threat. Another way to to to, to make that argument is to say... If you choose to use the Metaplot's suggestion 
that the inner circle, the, the, the top technocracy leadership, were in fact all Nefandi, that does to some extent absolve rank-and-file techies. They're led by monsters. They're yeah. led astray. Are they really to blame for their actions? But uh, if you don't like that, you don't have to. To take a line that's repeated uh, often in the book, reality is what you make of it. If you really want the Union to be your main uh, antagonists, then the M20 makes it very easy to select the relevant metaplot hooks from the menus in the sidebars and just use those. Or bring it right down and have the Union be faceless men in black and hit marks uh, who are evil incarnate. It's, exactly. uh, it's all up for grabs. Right, finally, before we move on to Chapter 6, Nightmare asks in the Midnight Express forums what we think overall about the metaplot going into the year 2015 with the New Horizon Council, the traditions getting updated, as well as the future fates. We are in 2015. <laughs> okay, to the point, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think perhaps for... Um, I haven't read Werewolf 20. I think perhaps for May... Sorry, for Vampire 20... It wasn't such a big deal not to update the metaplot so much because mm -hmm. the themes of that game, I think, are a little bit more timeless than yeah. those of Mage and a little bit less entwined with uh, ideas that themselves are closely related to where we are in history and to the state and level of technology and its pervasive nature in society. But I think Mage really couldn't have done without it. I think just looking at one of the old supplements like the digital web uh, and seeing what's written there makes you kind of realize you have to update these kind of things because otherwise they, they just don't ring true anymore. Right. Chapter 6, Creating the Character. So um, there's nothing revolutionary in here. It's a very thorough overview of building a mage. Long-term players will recognize what's here very clearly. We, it takes us step by step from concept to the numbers, assigning your dots for your character, through to the prelude, through to actual play and advancement, through experience points, mentorship, apprenticeship, and so forth. Um, as I say, nothing massively revolutionary, but it shouldn't be. You need this section to be straightforward and clear, because this is going to be, when you make your character, your first port of call. There are a ton of backgrounds from a variety of sources. Many of them have been changed and updated. It's really worth reading closely for old-time mage players. Uh, I'm going to call out Chantry, Sanctum, Totem, and Node just right off the bat there. They've all had little tweaks to them that uh, will bear closer examination. The descriptions of willpower, arate, quintessence, all very clear, very, very good. How is this uh, chapter for you guys? Um this is often one of the first sections of a new uh, gaming supplement that I read. And I really like this one for the reasons that you just men mentioned. And uh, two aspects particularly stood out for me. One is the character creation example, the character Jinx. Mm. Um, the description of how uh, Jinx's player comes up with the concept. I thought it was a very well-rounded description describing how she had a very basic idea. She came up with a few stats. Those few stats led to some more background ideas, which in turn led to some more stats, which led to some more background, which she justified with some stats. And over time, organically, this built up, including uh, Paradigm, uh, which is now Focus, which we'll, we'll come yeah. to a little bit later. Uh, and I really liked how magic isn't something tacked onto this person, but is an intimate part of the character creation process. 
And also, um, and this is the second thing that really stood out, uh, is the way that this character creation description described Jinx's prelude. I really like the idea introduced here, which I don't think I've seen in any earlier World of Darkness supplement, for the prelude to be a really early part of character generation before most of the stat choices have been made. Yeah. In most games, certainly in most games that I've played in, the prelude is like a solo session between the player and the storyteller prior to the game starting, but after the character is mostly set. So the idea of doing that earlier, where in Jinx's example, some of the things about how she does magic and about which, uh, what kind of a, a focus, what kind of tools she's going to have, those really come out of the prelude. And in fact, they have her awaken in the prelude. And, and then her player chooses a bunch of stats based on choices that she makes in the prelude and ideas that she has. And that's something that really stood out for me and that I would love to see in action. Yeah, it's sort of an interactive uh, character creation. Uh. I liked the new. I liked seeing optional rules for body control. That's a really cool addition. Nice little bit of crunch there. I thought it was interesting to see professional skills, expert knowledges, and hobby skills in a sidebar. I'm really taken by the minimum abilities optional rule. The fact that you need to have certain abilities to really use certain spheres in a, in a good way. Mm. I loved the attention it gives to gender identity. I'm not 100% sold on having all the secondary skills in the core book. I would have thought those would have fitted better in the Book of Secrets in the same way they were in the old Book of Shadows. But, you know, that's, that's really the only major criticism that I can find here. And if you're going for a, a comprehensive look at a character creation, I suppose it does make sense to have it all in one place. True. And, I mean, again, it's not... A lot of it is not new. Uh, the, the kind of way it's structured... It's very similar to, to the past, but I, I liked it back then too. I liked the way, even the way that the order that they put the things in so that the magic comes later. You think about your abilities, your skills before that, just to kind of form a picture of the person before the awakening and then to uh, go for the magic and the, the odd backgrounds and merits and flaws. That ordering of things is, is something which, I, which you mentioned before. There's an almost a building block approach. The way the book has been written, there's a lot of thought has clearly gone into what section should we have first and how is that going to inform what comes next. It's really nicely done. Mm. Right, Chapter 7, Telling the Story. Now, Mark, you mentioned that you've never run a mage game before, so I'm going to throw this one to you. <laughs> how you uh, how you found this? Is this something that would inspire you to pick up Mage? You you think there's enough here to give you a good grip on the on the game? I think it does. You know, having played in games run by yourself and other storytellers who've invested a lot of preparation and creative energy in in really kind of deeply plotted uh, stories with complex themes, I obviously know a lot of what to expect in terms of atmosphere, in terms of uh, you know, what you need in terms of a plot and a theme and things like that. I think some of it is a little bit over the top. I think we don't need to be told to finish eating the pizza before the game starts. Right. <laughs> or, you know, we, we could probably have done with less of the paragraph on how people used to play the music from CDs and now you can use MP3. Um, the sections on how to design the story and the plot uh, and how to uh, uh, incorporate concepts like a theme, I thought were really practical. I liked lots of the 
the music suggestions and the suggestions mm. for inspirational fiction. Um, I didn't like the 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 sideswipe at Nine Inch Nails particularly, but that's uh, yes. I we will not talk about that. Thank you. Entirely <laughs> by the bar, it reflects only our own biases. Um, I think it is a section where some readers may be bothered by the fact that Sater Phil doesn't hide his personal politics on things like uh, like gender and sexuality. Uh, I tend to agree with him on most of those issues, so it didn't bother me, but it is one of the few sections where uh, he does stray into areas which are particularly politically controversial at the moment and and takes positions that some people may find slightly strident. Um, and uh, that has happened. I mean, you don't have to look very far on the Internet to find people shrieking about this. But you mentioned uh, an interview that Phil gave earlier on, and I was going to save this quote for later, but he gave a fantastic quote, which you know, we might as, well, might as well look at it now. Uh, he said, From the very beginning, Nate has been deliberately subversive. Long before I got involved, Richard Thomas, Stuart Wick, and Travis Williams wanted to address the racist preconception that American heroes have to be white. They put Travis's character, Dante, on the cover, a black technomancer in the role of the magician card from the Mystic Tarot. That image set the tone for Mage's assault on preconceptions. We turned the apparently evil technocracy into the dedicated, if often brutal, guardians of humanity, showed the corrupt core of the originally virtuous traditions, revealed how insane marauders actually possess a frightening kind of sanity, and admitted that even the intensely malevolent Nefandi understand things about reality that no one else wants to see. We have addressed and continue to address real-world issues of race, gender, sexuality, identity, drugs, crime, faith, media, subversion, dissent, big business, oppression, colonialism, technology, social morality and ethics, and many other themes as well. Yeah, that sometimes pisses people off, and I'm okay with that. We're not aiming at cheap shocks. We're driven by real outrage about terrible things and by a deep faith that people can be better than we so often are. And for me, I, you know, I agree with you, and it would be foolish not to agree because you can go and read it for yourself. People have gotten, their, uh, have, have gotten a bee in their bonnet about this. But I kind of think if you're not willing to take that on board and if you're not willing to accept that, you're kind of playing the wrong game because on a very large degree, that's what Mage is. I think that's a fair comment. Uh, I think generally people who shriek on the internet need to sit down, count to ten, and drink less coffee. <laughs> there should be there should be less shrieking on the internet in general. So I don't yeah. I don't really take uh, those contributions to the quote unquote debate hugely seriously. But right. but overall, I think uh, you're right that Mage is very much a game that tackles these very complex issues head on, and does so in a way that is not absurd, that is not shallow that is not about cheap laughs or katana-wielding, monofilament whip-flinging. <laughs> yeah. You, you get what I'm, what I'm driving at yeah, here, I think. Absolutely. If that's what you're after, then there are lots of other games out there. Nonetheless, for a game with such complex themes, it manages to be accessible to a very broad audience. Um, and this is a section that goes a long way to helping storytellers find out how to do that in practical terms. There was one last comment I would like to make about this section, and that is that it, um, and this is something particularly encouraging for me as someone considering at some point running a mage game, it, it makes very explicit that you don't need to use all of the meta plot. It doesn't need to have to be a, 
uh, a chronicle that is uh, global uh, and scope in scope where the ascension war is at the forefront you can run an intimate story in fact it's recommended yeah, I thought it was a powerful overview of how to build a chronicle. And it's reminiscent to me of the Book of Mirrors, which is the second edition storyteller's guide, which I reread every time I'm about to run and write and prep a mage chronicle. It, it, it's that good. Uh, it covers, as you've said, setup, dealing with atmosphere, designing the game, running the game, music, research, different styles of play. It addresses gender issues with the gender neutral pronouns. It's very, very thorough. Just Two, two thumbs up. Three with a life effect. Outstanding. That brings us on to book three, Ascend. Chapter eight, The Book of Rules. There's not much to say about this. It's the standard World of Darkness rules chapter. It tells us about dice pools, extended actions, multiple actions. There's some really nice, graphically eloquent tables summarizing things that were buried in the text before. The section is what it needs to be. Short, clear, and concise which is a good thing, because chapter 9 comes next, Dramatic Systems. Now, this gives us systems for running dramatic scenes, combat, social interaction, and so forth. These are standard fare for most World of Darkness games, but Mage 20 handles them with some differences. Now, in previous editions, the Dramatic Systems section would span a dozen pages or more. You'd get rules for running, lifting, hacking computers, tailing, seduction, etc. Mage 20 manages to cover the entire thing in half that, Four pages and three pages of charts. Uh, I'm not quite sure how Sator has done this. Uh, it's an ingenious piece of design work. And it manages, nevertheless, to be the clearest it has ever been. Often, I'd, you know, I'd be like, well, he needs to hack a computer. Where do I find that? And I'd be flipping through the book, and oh, there, there's hacking. Um, but here, it's, uh, yeah, brilliant. A really clever, clever idea. It's mm -hmm. a correspondence matter effect. It really is 20 pages. You just can't tell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There are some cool new additions. There's a nice little set of rules for social confrontations. Some optional rules for dealing with things that man was not meant to know. Tentacles for a face! Uh, there's a nice chart summarizing movement rates. Very, very handy, because I'm always struggling to find those damn things. Combat systems do receive a hefty page count, as we've come to expect. The optional rules for cinematic damage and the general action roles are in there, which is cool to see. This doesn't just address the basics, however. It covers the sort of stuff that actually often comes up in mage games. How do I fast cast in combat? What do I need to do to fight spirits? What magical tactics can I use in a fight? Super cool. It's followed with a section on martial arts and the Akashic art of Do, um, which is derived from the stuff in the excellent revised Akashic tradition book by Malcolm Shepard. There's a little sidebar for the martial arts of the Wulung, and sidebars here and there for little mage tricks like catching bullets and the thunder punch. Then the chapter really takes off. You've got magical duels, core wars, flame wars, fighting online. You've got rules for Kataman that are stripped down from the rules in the old Book of Shadows. There's environmental hazards, falling damages, poisons, how to awaken your drugs, vehicle chases and fights. Then the digital web. Nine pages on the digital web. Brilliant. Beckett. Hi, Beckett. Was really impressed by this. Uh, as he says, it goes through some of the basic history of the digital web, but rather than just saying what it was, how it evolved, and then what it became, it offers a lot of potential what-ifs involving some of the past material. Super, super. And as if that weren't enough, we then get 22 pages on the Umbra and the Umbrood. This is just fantastic. 
incredibly coherent writing. It pulls together systems from the spirit world uh, from years of mage books. A brilliant section. Gives you a thorough overview of all the main rules you need for the Umbra. Spirit types laid out for you in a sidebar of exquisite detail. There are pages and pages of spirit charms, including notes on how these compare and differ to the spirit charms in Weirwolf 20th, which was a huge plus for me. Mm. A brilliant sidebar on handling the Avatar Storm. For me, this is truly one of the highlights of the book. As you guys will know, we had a little jaunt into the Astral during the last session of our Mage game, and this was my Bible for that. I didn't even need to go back to Book of Worlds or the Infinite Tapestry. Mage 20 just delivered it to me on a shining silver uh, purple plate. <laughs> Brilliant. So, which brings us neatly to Chapter 10, the Book of Magic. Here we go, the final chapter, and it is a monster. I'll just give a quick overview of its structure, and then we can get stuck into it. It starts with a quick and dirty overview of casting magic. With this, with the sphere descriptions and the charts of common magical effects, you can actually be up and running in minutes casting effects. It's a really smart design decision for new players, allows them to get a really strong feel for the system. And it builds especially well on all that background detail that was given to us back in Chapter 2. We have the usual magical reference charts that give us damage, duration, correspondence ranges, gauntlet ratings, that kind of thing. These are laid out again really clearly with a list of common magical effects, as I said, like in the old Book of Mirrors. And then we get the descriptions of the spheres. Now, when I first got the book, I opened straight to this section, and I was like, what? Where are they? It's very bare bones. There are no paragraphs of sample effects like we're used to. The writing is very tight, though. And these, along with the common effects list, and a few wrotes later on, Actually, in hindsight, they do provide a working overview of the system. For full details, you'd need to see the supplement How Do You Do That, but I have since come to revise my initial shocked impression at the absence of a fully, fully fleshed out description of the spheres. And that really is a testament to the clarity and the tightness of the writing. Yeah, I think the, the list of common magical effects is quite good to give you a baseline of how the spheres work, in addition to their descriptions. Again, it's, it's, it's really difficult to judge when you already know the spheres from previous editions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we might need to try them on somebody new who's never done it before. But <laughs> it felt like it was enough. Plus, I think if you only have this book and you start playing, it lets you customize the spheres a bit. They're not right. clear-cut. So in your game, if you want to be able to do something with life three <clears throat> and the group agrees, sorry, then you do. And it it may not contradict any of the written rules, even though later on in how do they do that you find out that it's life four. And I think it kind of it could lead to a nice dialogue slash conversation slash argument about what each one of these does, which might actually make the game better later on just from having ironed these out as a group rather than reading it in the rule. That's a really good point. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Well, I had your... I, I shared your initial impression that the spheres should have more space. However, mm. having actually read the section on spheres, I have to come back from my... as you have, from my initial impression. You're right to say that the writing is extremely tight. Saterfil manages here, in a very low word count to convey an awful lot of information about yes. how the spheres work and what the different levels can do. What you end up with 
with the descriptions in the sphere chapter and the common magical effects tables is a framework just like Noam described a moment ago, but without anything that a new player could read as a spell list. Uh, yes. So actually, I think it's an advantage. Right. Because it conveys the spontaneous nature of magic with a K. I think the one thing I would have added a bit more of is examples of the use of the spheres in conjunction with each other. Hmm. Because I find that most of the things that I like to do as a player and most of the really kind of original stuff that you end up doing is using several spheres at the same time. And you do have some examples here in in the lists of common magical effects, but I would have liked to see more just to give people a bit more of a glimpse of what is possible with the system. Each sphere on its own is is kind of, well, supposed to be limited to that sphere. Uh, it's when you put them together that things can get really, really weird and wonderful, and it would have been nice to see a bit more of that here in the list. Yeah, you can really see how far it can go. I think that's a fair criticism. If I, if I think back sort of five and a half years to when I started playing Mage regularly, this is one of the things that, that I found hardest to get my head around. So a little bit more, more guidance on that would be useful. But the how do you do that uh, supplement is now, it, it, it's available, isn't it? Yes, and it covers that pretty, pretty thoroughly, actually. Yep. Okay, we then get the variant technomantic spheres, data, dimensional science, and primal utility from the revised convention books. Uh, they're laid out in... Uh, the same level of detail as the main spheres, actually a little bit more detail than the main spheres. Uh, Noam, seeing as you're a dyed-in-the-wool technomancer, was there anything that struck you with those? Yeah, I, th- I think as far as data and dimensional science, they're very similar to the, the original spheres, to Correspondence and Spirit. They, they have slight differences, like a few things you can do a bit better, a few things you can't really get to. But overall, you can see how... The the origin was the same, and they they kind of split apart. The third sphere, the primal utility, which replaces prime, is very different. There's some things you can do in the same way you still manipulate quintessence, but you look at it in a completely different way. You draw quintessence and, well, funds from enterprises, companies, mobs. It's very difficult to see, for example, how you would use that exactly to create a new device. The only real easy way I could think of to to be able to do that is that the syndicate using this pays the others to make them the devices. Right, you're, you're, funding, you're funding some crazy venture capitalist to go and build you a rocket pack or that kind of thing. Exactly. You kind of yeah. go to Iteration X and ask them for the, uh, for the device. You, you launch a Kickstarter to, to create your 700-page book that you're... Uh, Indeed. You're, you're trying to make. <laughs> <laughs> but cool. overall, I like the way that it looks at, at the spheres in a slightly different way. I think one of the past supplements mentioned how this, I can't remember if it was mentioned here, how the spheres were actually thought up in quite recent history, as far as human history goes, 
And yes. this gives you uh, a look at how they could have turned out different and did for other groups. Yes. And maybe it will lead to, to other versions of spheres popping up in future supplements, which would be very no. interesting. Now, after this initial introduction, the chapter goes into a step-by-step overview of casting magic in fine detail. And we get some fantastic rules work and some great optional rule systems here. Reality zones, which you mentioned earlier on. Mythic threads, which have been talked about in Mage, but never fleshed out in this way, a thorough and highly overdue analysis of judging the vulgarity of effects, an in-depth look at the dividing successes rules that were used in Revised, some incredible new rules for casting time. I just love these. It depends on how many Arate successes you need. The more successes your effect needs, the longer each roll takes. I mean, it's just <laughs> such a simple idea, but works works so well. There's some great stuff on rituals. Paradox as well receives a new dust-off, a mingling of the new and old rules, and a default system that combines them both. There's a fantastic updated look at quiet, resonance and synergy, as I mentioned before, revised and updated. And then we get some good examples of the rules in action. If I have to look for criticisms, and I, and I, I have to look for them, you know, I've got to go hunting. Uh, there's a couple of minor issues with clarity. There seems to be a contradiction regarding what sphere levels are required to conjure base matter, for example. The text says matter 2, but the list of common effects say matter 3, plus prime, of course. And I'm still struggling to grasp when an effect counts against the limit of effects you're allowed to have running before you suffer a difficulty increase. Um, that could have just be my teeny tiny brain. Apart from these two issues, the section is extremely clear, well laid out, and very easy to reference in play. Then we come to what for me is the best bit of Mage 20 ever, the new approach to Paradigm. I mean, focus. It's an incredible breakdown on how to build a paradigm, including tons of sample belief systems, details on sample approaches to magic, uh, your instruments, your styles. This for me opens up playing a mage like never before. The thing that makes most new and lots of old players scratch their heads is set out here in glorious clarity. 35 pages on this. And if you ask me, they are the best 35 pages in any Mage Core book anywhere. Uh, I, I loved it. I do remember trying to come up with a paradigm that made sense for characters and struggling and struggling and winging it for session after session until I kind of managed to find something that seemed to work. I don't know that I'll use the exact examples given here, but mm. they're, they're such good ideas. There's, there's such a good list that you can pick and choose bits and pieces. You can just be inspired by them. And just having a list where details are written about it so that you can see the kind of thing you have to come up with and, and then just go out, think about it, come back with your own. That's already enough. That's already more than we've ever had. And, and yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's been missing for so long. It's amazing that it's here. I think previously there were one or two pre-cooked paradigms that you could just pick up and play. If you, if you were going to play a hermetic, you didn't have to come up with a paradigm for your character. Right. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, in a technocracy game, the paradigms were quite rigid as well, I think, from yeah. flipping through the guide to the technocracy many years ago. If you weren't going to play one of those two options... As both of you have said, this is something that caused headaches to many people, including some who played for years. That has been completely resolved now through a, a whole menu of options. You can choose to play essentially an off-the-shelf paradigm. You know, if you don't want to come up with your own esoteric system, 
then play, everything is data. And if we refer back to the, the chapter on the traditions, for each of them, a few of these, or combinations of elements of a few of these, are listed for each tradition as being paradigms that you may wish to choose, although yes. they, they do emphasize that these cho choices don't have to be stereotypical. You can play a verbena who believes that everything is data, which is nice. What you can also do, and this section very clearly shows you how, is make up your own the way you did in the earlier editions of the book. And I found that it's extremely helpful the way they broke down the overarching concept into focus instruments and styles. If I, if I look at my own character, I can very easily point to what each of those things are. You know, if, uh, if Alistair doesn't survive the next few chapters, <laughs> I'm going to be sore about that uh, because I've thoroughly enjoyed playing him. But I don't think I'll be concerned about finding a new paradigm to play. I'm not sure about the best 35 pages in any Mage Core book, but I haven't studied any of the Mage Core books as closely as you have. I do think this was a brilliant section. It's really lucid, and as Noam says, it's full of great ideas, examples, lots of stuff that you can really use. Yeah, I'm prone to exaggeration, but uh, yes, <laughs> very good. And Alistair will be fine, I'm sure he'll be okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Hal Chase and uh, Roz Chan on Facebook are two of many who applauded this chapter. Roz said that the chapters dealing with the magic system have a lot of good stuff embedded in them that highlight the flexibility of the system, but also give good parameters. And Ralph Rea added to this on Facebook, saying that the focus rules are absolutely awesome. Paradigm may be fairly pointless, he says, but practice and instruments are what Mage has always needed and kind of sort of had, but never put forth so clearly and neatly enough to make modification easy if you feel the need. Yeah, in a game that is basically a struggle between opposing philosophical views, you have to have the philosophical view at some point. But but yeah, it does it doesn't necessarily translate immediately into how you do your magic. I think that's kind of the style, the foci, the, the or tools I should say are more visible in 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 how you use them in the game. And it it also kind of bears mentioning we haven't touched on this that they've changed the way that they relate to the spheres. Previously, you'd have one focus per sphere, one set of instruments or practices per sphere. Mm -hmm. And now instead what the game does, it says pick seven. And if you're a mystic, discard them starting with Arate 3. And if you're a technomancer with uh, Arate 6. But they're not tied to any specific sphere. So you could use your sensory deprivation tank with correspondence as well as with entropy, for example. Uh, paradigm pointless. I think... It may seem that way because it's not so relevant to the rule system. To sort of restate something Noam said a moment ago, it is important because it determines why your mage believes they can actually do magic. Yeah. The how yeah. is the instruments in the practice. Um, yeah, it is, it is the heart of the game. I, I totally agree. <coughs> no. cool. Yes, that really sums it up perfectly. So, that's it for the main chapters. There's a couple of appendices. Let's look at those. Appendix 1, Allies and Antagonists, which is stats. Lots and lots of stats. It gives us a bestiary, stats for animals. Beware the substantial bird. Um, there's even stats for chihuahuas here. Uh, Batwings not included. It has statistics for the mortals that you might meet. Citizens, beat cops, professional badasses. There are no stats for street ninjas. Destiny's Price does not approve. <laughs> it gives us some stats for technocracy minions, including the awesome hit mark 10. <laughs> Wonderful. We've got some sample mages, sample marauders, sample nefandi, 
a whole bunch of spirits, elementals, naturae, animal spirits, totems. I couldn't help but notice that there are no Zigrauglur. Mage 20th is dead to me. There are, where are the Zig? There are paradox spirits. In your game, Mark, as usual. Yeah. They come up very, very <laughs> often. All over uh, the game. Paradox Spirits, there's only a couple of these, but one of them is Wrinkle, so what more do you need? Appendix 2 is appropriately called Odds and Ends. We've got some Merits and Flaws. There are not many of these. There'll be more to follow in the Book of Secrets. We've got a few handy ones here, though. Language is a Merit, as people will have seen in other 20th Anniversary games. True Faith, of course. Storm Warden, very handy for avoiding the Avatar Storm. And some Genetic Flaws, which is a cute new way of handling pattern bleeding. It's really rather cool. And a list of derangements. And wonders, some sample wonders, and a really stripped-down system for creating them. It works well enough. We've used it in play already. But I have to say I'm looking forward to a more expansive system on this in the Book of Secrets. That said, there is enough to play with and go here. And finally, an index. Yes, an index, and it's a really good one. And pretty funny in places, too. Satyr has thrown his usual joke entries in here and there. No pants, but a few other little gems. Mainly, though, a great index divided into uh, rules, topics, and general topics. Years of non-existent mage indices atoned for in one fell swoop. Hooray! So many game supplements, not just mage, but, but all over the, the gaming hobby. Uh, did without, and and that in the days where you couldn't just word search the PDF. Yeah. So it, it may seem a little bit less important now. Although in a, in a book of this size, if you PDF a game term, you're going to get thirty, forty, fifty hits. Yeah. So it's still quite useful to have a good index. What the what the book really needs is a concordance. Uh, for people <laughs> who haven't done any Bible studies, a concordance uh, is a uh, a book that you read next to the book that's usually about as long or longer that has every mention with some context and some history and some etymology. So you can imagine references to revised tradition books, to the Book of Mirrors, what have you. If anybody on the forum isn't busy for a couple of months, uh, Mark and I would like to recruit you. Uh, and we can talk <laughs> about this offline. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Some final thoughts then. Uh, first off, uh, a few last questions from our listeners. Jean-François Saint-Ange asked on Facebook what we thought of all the optional rules. Now, we've, we've mentioned a few of those. He wants to know how relevant are they, how good are they. For me, the big one is dividing successes, seeing how that worked, seeing the mechanics of that teased out, the wiring under the board, so to speak, of how these successes divide up, I think is great. Lovely to see that. I'm happy that the Avatar Storm is optional. <laughs> Um, I think uh, reality is what you make of it, and all rules are optional. Yes. But, but I'd say that, you know, this is something we've covered in some detail when we were talking about the sidebars. The, the optional rules, uh, quite a lot of the rule changes between the various uh, editions of Mage were driven by Metaplot. Or, or I suppose you could approach that from the opposite direction and say that they wrote the Metaplot to explain differences in, in rule systems that had come out through playtesting. But by making certain rules optional, uh, I think that's the wise choice, given that um, uh, some of them are so closely tied to metaplot elements that storytellers and cabals may decide not to use. But I do think uh, it's worth repeating that uh, all rules are optional. Yes, very true. Uh, and and, and it's, it's a point that Satyr Phil repeats uh, on a few occasions throughout the text. 
a lot. Yeah. Kenneth Lewis on Facebook and Trippy at the Onyx Park forums asked about crossover rules and how well integrated does the game feel with other World of Darkness games. Uh, Sator himself stepped up with an answer for this on Facebook. He said, Detailed crossover rules have never been part of a World of Darkness rulebook. Those books deal with specifically what? The whatevering. And that's the way it's been since the beginning, and it's that way for reasons. I think the only crossover rule you need for Mage is the lawn chair rule. <laughs> <laughs> and that's enough for me. I, uh, I'm not much of a fan of World of Darkness crossovers. I like my uh, what the whatevering to be focused on its own themes. You know, whether it's a vampire game or a mage game or a changeling game or a wraith game. Uh, rather than becoming uh, World of Darkness, the everything and nothing action adventures TM. <laughs> yeah. But having said that, and I hate to contradict uh, Sator Phil, the Vampire the Masquerade Revised Storyteller's Handbook did actually contain some very useful crossover rules. So there is some precedent, although I'm perfectly happy with the choice not to include crossover rules. I would be perfectly happy to play in a mage game that includes no vampires, no werewolves no other supernaturals, or if it did, to not bother giving them their own rule systems and stats. I completely agree with that. I mean, yeah, the Mage Revised Storyteller's Handbook itself did have a crossover section at the back, but I'm completely on board with you when it comes to not having them in the core book. Or if you do, uh, the vampires, for example, aren't kindred. The werewolves aren't guru, and they don't have to have gifts or disciplines. You can just give them their own kind of weird powers, and they don't really need to match whatever's happening in their own game line. So then... Overall impressions from me, yeah, very high. Uh, you know, I am a mage fan through and through. Sure, you can point out things that were missing, um, investments maybe, the soul trade system from Book of Madness revised, uh, seasonal play enchantry system from the Guide to the Traditions, but you know, you have to draw the line somewhere. Maybe we could have gotten some more free pages by leaving out secondary skills or trimming down the pages of weapon stats. But as we've said a couple of times throughout this review, you, you have to struggle to find meaningful criticisms more than anything else. We've mentioned you know, that Satyr's voice might not be for everyone, nor his politics, and that has generated a fair bit of chatter on the internet. But that quote from earlier on sums up Phil's position eloquently. Whatever your feelings, his is the voice of Mage in its heyday. And for me, it is great to have it back. If anything, it's more passionate now than ever before. And that makes the game feel more alive than ever before. Mage has always been political, and let's face it, there's more reason now than ever before to be political. So for all this, that it's a, an anniversary edition, this really is not a work of nostalgia. It's a vibrant, exciting, fresh edition, alive for the 21st century. And it plays really, really well. I totally agree. I think that having done this podcast, I'm just going to go back and read it again. <laughs> that's uh, that's the, my main take from this uh, from this evening is that yeah I need to read this one again. What about your marks out of ten now? And what would you give it? Uh, yeah, it has to be a ten, doesn't it? Again, yeah, there might be a few little bits missing, but it's there's so much here, there's so much of it, and it's structured well, and you just. Everything you look for, you, you find it. It's there, and and it's and it's nice, and it's yeah. Uh, I'll give it a ten. Cool, Mark. So I went to a school where um, some of the teachers insisted that nine out of ten was for the teacher, and ten out of ten was for God. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless, it has to be a ten. Uh, I love it. If uh, if I had nothing to complain about, uh, I would be arguing for an 11 out of 10. 
I think it's a tremendous achievement. Uh, I think it's worth uh, every one of the uh, far more pennies than I will admit to my significant other I spent on Kickstarter uh, yeah. to get a nice deluxe edition and a screen and all the other goodies that are waiting to be printed and sent to me. I'm hugely pleased with how it's reinvigorated the game line. I've been loving the debate on social media, how um, I think you mentioned the other day old line developers getting involved on Facebook, chatting with players about how plot points are being being used in games. Uh, yeah. I think it's really breathed a new lease of life into what is probably, to me at least, one of the, if not the most inspiring achievements from the tremendous uh, classic World of Darkness line. Yep, top mark for me as well. 10 out of 10 for the 10 spheres. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I've just been blown away by it. I've struggled to read, to think about anything else since the book landed on my doorstep. And to be honest, that's what Mage has always felt like to me back in the day. It's the only game that we ever decided we had to play less of because it was just taking over our minds. Um, so to have that feeling recaptured is the best endorsement that I can give. Mm. Outstanding work. So, I want to say thanks to my co-hosts, Mark and Noam, for giving up their valuable time in reading the book and joining me this evening for the podcast. Thanks, guys. It's been great to have you on board. Cool. Yep. been great to be here. I want to say thank you to all the Mage fans online who weighed in with their various questions during the initial phases of preparation of the podcast. A huge thank you also to my buddies at Darker Days. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can contact us at darkerdaysradio at gmail. Dot com. You can also find us on Google+, Plus. Uh, also track the show down on Facebook. And ultimately, that's it from me and from my co-hosts. Good night, folks, and take it easy. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.